You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, this week's podcast is brought to you by Be A Broadway Star, the only Broadway board game out there. And yeah, we came up with it. Go to BeABroadwayStar.com if you don't know about it. Or go to that place called Amazon. You know, you probably heard about that when they deliver 17 boxes to your door every day. BeABroadwayStar.com. It's super, super fun. And if you ask really nicely, we'll send you the drinking game version. Check it out at BeABroadwayStar.com. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast. My name is Ken Davenport. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for subscribing. Thanks for all the things you do. My guest this week, you are in for a treat. The Tony Award-winning director, Mr. Walter Bobby. Welcome, Walter. Thank you. It's good to be here, Ken. So on Broadway, Walter's directed a whole bunch of shows, including last season's Bright Star, as well as Venus and Fur, White Christmas, Sweet Charity. And of course, he won that Tony I mentioned earlier for his direction of a show that no one has ever heard of and that hasn't run very long called Chicago. Walter, your first exposure to the theater, the first time you even saw a show or knew it even was a thing, what was it? I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, so the idea of anything having to do with the theater or Broadway, my grandparents were all Polish coal miner immigrants, so there was none of this in my past or my history. But I remember... In the eighth grade, my dad bought me a uh, a stereo for Christmas. And because he knew someone at Capitol Records, he got three albums from Capitol Records. And one of them was Oklahoma. And I put it on. And I didn't know why. I played it over and over and over. And then when I came and saw Broadway, 
that afternoon of seeing how to succeed, I frankly had to hold myself in my chair. I wanted to get up and do it. And then seeing Glass Menagerie in one day, I was convinced that I wanted to come back here and do this. I had done the school show and kindergarten and second grade and high school plays and all that. But it was at that point that I thought, this is what I really want to do. And what did your parents say? You said not a good idea at all. They were terrified. They wouldn't let me do summer stock. They thought I'd turn into a drug addict. <laughs> they were not in favor of it. They didn't understand what I wanted to do. And finally, I just said, I'm going to graduate school, and I'm going to graduate school in theater. And right after graduate school, I was offered some regional theater companies, including Arena as an actor. And I came to New York uh, instead. I lived on the Lower East Side before it was cool. My place was broken into. My parent, my father coming in at 2 o'clock in the morning and mailing me back into my apartment, which had been broken into and ransacked. And after several months, I got my first off-Broadway job, which was to stand by for the Dames at Sea. I was the last male standby for Dames at Sea at the Theater de Lise. And, so my, and I knew I was going to go on. Kurt, Kurt Peterson had some room, and I knew I was going to go on in two Sundays, and I asked my parents if they wanted to come, and they said, well, let me, let's think about it, and we'll call you back in a couple of days. And they called back in a couple of days, and they said, we need 38 tickets. <laughs> and they brought the neighborhood. So they went from thinking this was impossible to just thinking it was great, and were supportive after that, because I just, I came here, and I, I had the good fortune of working all the time. You had a very successful career as an actor. I did. I came to New York, and after six months, I had my first off-Broadway job. And I went. I did a whole bunch of unsuccessful shows in the next two years. I did a show called Drat off-Broadway. Bonnie and Franklin and I had the lead in that. did Frank Merriwell, which lasted one night on Broadway. I was the understudy of Russ Thacker in The Grass Harp. And then I was cast in the original Company of Grease. And all of that happened in the first two years I was here. And once Greece happened, then it was, I was not just getting jobs. I mean, it was very encouraging because even though I was in flops, I kept getting work. So that's, I, I want to talk about that one night only performance. What was the show again that closed after one performance? Well, there were two that closed after one performance. One was called Frank Merriwell, which was hopeless. But the, the, the nice thing about it was it was the next show that I want to say, uh, uh, Neil Kenyon did. And Neil Kenyon was the director of Games at Sea. So I was the understudy, and my next job was from that same director in a Broadway show. So even out of something, it happens a lot in this business, even out of the ones that don't work out, something good can come. As a friend of mine said long ago, you have to get a job before you get a promotion. And that's important. If you, it, it happens in now when I'm in the room with assistants or other people, you know where the talent is, and you keep that in mind. The other show that I did, which lasted one night, was called Drag, and it was based on the, the Drunkard and very elegant producers, uh, Richard Barr and Barnwood Woodward, who produced Sweeney Todd and all the Albee plays. They were fantastic producers. Why they chose to do this little musical, I have no idea. We were at the McAlpin Rooftop Theater. But what was remarkable and what was encouraging about my early experience in the theater is I knew the show was terrible. And they, we were opening on Sunday, and they came to me on Wednesday and said, we are going to close this show on opening night, and we'd like to offer you the understudy for The Grass Heart. And so I closed the show on Sunday. I opened it and closed it on Sunday, and I went back to work on Monday. So... Whether it was expedient or efficient or whatever, these producers offered me 
told me I was they were closing the show and offered me another job immediately. So there was something encouraging and inviting. I felt immediately welcomed into the business. Or I was just stupid lucky. And when did you start to have directorial instincts? Always. <laughs> Always. <laughs> well, not that I wanted... I, I, I grew more and more interested in directing over time. I really liked working with... I found that in shows, I... I I'm, I was much more interested in hanging out with the, with the writers and the designers than I was going and having a beer with the cast. I just liked seeing people tell the entire story instead of just their part of the story. And I directed a few little industrial shows and things like that. And it was interesting because I was around. Jerry Zachs came in from the road of Company of Greece into the Broadway show. And it was interesting to be around Jerry's early evolution because I knew Jerry as an actor. And... uh and to watch him make that transition. And uh, when I was ready for it, he became very, very supportive of that idea. It was quite wonderful as I started. But I've always been interested, but, but I couldn't... You know, it's very hard to redefine who you are in this business. You can't uh, say... You can have 100 Broadway credits and know everybody in town, but when you say, gee, I think I'd like to direct, well, there's no evidence that that should be a good idea. And I'm always... It's always fascinating when you see those people. Well, Michael... Uh, Arden is the perfect example of someone who now has made that transition and he's now taken seriously. But usually it's because you've gone out and made your own work somewhere. Nobody's going to suddenly go, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Here's $15 million. What do you want to do? You know? So what was your first work? How did you prove to everyone that this is something you wanted to do? You know, I couldn't... I had a very hard time, actually. I was turned down a lot to even do readings by people I'd worked with. So it was disappointing. And I and I thought, I guess I'm going to have to make my own work. And I need to figure out how this works. And so a friend of mine at the time wrote a wonderful three-character play about three women who meet for lunch on the Upper West Side. And it was called Meet for Lunch. It was like a 40-minute play. And I went over to, I think it was called Paulson's at the time. It's now, what is that place where they, on the Upper West Side? The Triad. The Triad, triad. thank you, the Triad. And I said, can I do this play for a month at brunch on Sunday? And they said, yes. (laughs) And I put together a budget of $1,000, because I didn't know how to do this. And uh, instead of putting my own $1,000 in, I got five friends to invest $200 each, and I put together a budget, I think, and all the actors got paid at that time before all the media stuff, the advertising budget was for postcards, and I think I paid myself $27 or something, but somehow I put, because I, a friend of mine said, if you know what to do with, you know, with a dollar, you'll know what to do with a million dollars. If you are deal with it as investment, or uh, you'll, you'll, you'll make it, figure it out. And I learned a lot on them. People say, I said, don't wait for somebody to hire you. If you've never done it before, you have to hire yourself. And that's how I did it. I paid all the investors back, I think, $186. So everybody lost about $14. But you know, but when you put that in perspective, you understand when somebody puts a million dollars in your show, what you're asking. And so it, it's a, it was a good teaching mechanism for me. Because I started to understand, so that when I was offered like the artistic directorship of Encores, I had given myself a tutorial in how it, this works in a larger sense. Because I didn't study directing, I didn't study producing, I never studied management. I was an actor. And so I stopped trying to get people to hire me, but I started hiring myself. 
And when friends wanted to work on their auditions, I said, come over uh, and let me see if there's something I can say or do that helps you. And so I am self-taught. And the other thing is, I always worked with superb directors. When you were an actor? When I was an actor, it was Jerry Duke, everyone from Jerry Gutierrez to, to Dan Sullivan to Tom Moore. I mean, I'm, you know, even sitting, even understudying uh, The Grass Harp. I was sitting there watching the great Ellis Rabb to a show that didn't work, but I was watching Ellis Rabb direct. So I was always around, you know, I was in the room. Just, I was in the room where it was happening. <laughs> one piece of advice that you remember getting from one of those directors that you still... I remember because Bob Robert Moore, director who did Lovelace, Neil Simon things, directed Promises, Promises, was a very successful Broadway director. I think he directed the original... Uh, did he direct the original Boys in the Band? Anyway, he was also from Catholic University. And I remember as a young, as a sort of a pup in the city calling him and saying... How did that happen? Because uh, Bob Moore was also an actor who became a very successful director of musicals and plays. And he said, I don't know. He said, but one day you'll find yourself. And they will say, why don't you sit on the other side of the table? And he said, I don't remember how that happened, but it did. And I always remember that because he didn't say, call this one or do this or study with so-and-so. He said, just keep the idea alive. And one day they'll just ask you to wear another hat. And that's ultimately what happened. And what was the first Broadway show that you did? The first, as an actor? As a director. As a director. What happened was that I had done, a friend of mine was working at uh, the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, uh, but he was also the artistic director of St. Bart's Playhouse. And he asked me if I wanted to direct, but I think happened the word of form. And St. Bart's, as you know, is a kind of a community theater. And I said, okay, I'm doing that. Well... Along the years, and I did it very, very well, and I had a lot of friends who participated, and um, then this job came up to do a review at the Rainbow and Stars based on the work of Rogers and Hammerstein. And because someone had see, see, seen that, see, Tom Briggs had seen that, he also suggested that uh, Ted Chapin talk. And I talked to Ted Chapin, and for some reason, they gave me this this, they reviewed a director, the Rogers and Hammerstein, called A Grand Night for Singing. Carte Blanche, no questions. I said how I thought I would do it, blah, blah, blah. And this is one of those moments. I went to Jerry Zach's. I had a great role as playing Nicely Nicely and Guys and Dolls on Broadway. A big hit. And that's when I knew I, if this was not something I wanted to do in the spare time. This is something I wanted to do. And I asked for a three-week leave of absence from a hit from Guys and Dolls. And Jerry granted it to me. And I went and I directed this thing at the Rainbow and Stars. And for some, inexplicably, all the mainstream critics came to see it. And I got wonderful. They just suddenly said, oh, he's a director. And then suddenly I was being offered Chris Durang's play at EST. I was offered the uh, to direct the first show at Encores, which was Fiorello, where I asked Jerry Zach to play Fiorello. <laughs> <laughs> and that was another blessed moment because everybody said, "You should, oh, you should direct, you should direct, you should direct." Suddenly, I before it was before anyone knew what encore was, I was off for the first show, and I said to the casting director, Jay Binder, "We are asking a couple people," and they said, "What is that? We don't know." Blah, blah, blah. And I said, "Ask no one. I'm asking Jerry to do this because if Jerry says yes with his four Tonys, it will be like the seal of approval, and everyone will show up." Jerry thought about it, and he said yes. And once Jerry said yes, my cast ended up being 
Adamark, Fate Prince, Donna McKenzie, Phil Bosco. It goes on. I mean, everybody just said yes. What I love, and I've heard this from other artistic directors that said you, ironically, you said about your very first show you did at the Triad, mm-hmm. I don't know how to do this. Innately, you obviously did. No, I did, and, you and were, I've been, yeah, I'm sorry. You, I were, you were producing. I, mean, I was producing. Yeah. Even this moment of like, don't offer it to any other actors. Get one, the rest will follow. That's what I do all the time. Yeah. That same philosophy. So that, you know, everybody thinks that we did that in, in a week or we didn't. I, once I got that job, I let that be my job for the next six months, figuring out how to do it because people weren't doing it. There was no template, really. And we were creating it. And, um, and I got there that first day and I thought, if I can get this cast on and off stage, it's gold. I mean, everybody in the room, every part was, it became a party everybody wanted to be part of. And the first after the first day, I remember Jerry came over to me after the end of the first day. He said, "It's going to be okay." <laughs> <laughs> and after that, they offered me the artistic directorship of the. Uh, but here's the thing: I I was never anyone's assistant or associate. I'd never had a mentor. I just wanted to do it. I paid attention to what was around, and I and and I gave myself the experience of seeing if I could have an impact. And once something like encores came. You really are producing there in a sense. You are, you are, at least at that point, there was no template. There was no way how, there was no way to do it. And so you sat down and you figured it out. And, uh, a joyous experience in the business. I mean, the, the range of things that I've got to do with people I've got to work with. Yeah. And sidebar, you were incredible in that guy's doll. Oh, right? thank I mean, you. What? Thank uh, that sit down, you're rocking the boat was, I will never forget it. I mean, I don't rely. So let's talk about your process uh, in in the room. So first day of rehearsal of a new musical you're working on, what do you do? Or you start with table work? Do you get people? What, what what's a Walter Bobby room like? I think the Walter Bobby room is happens long before the first day of rehearsal. I love the process of working with the writer. So there's something worth reading. I want to believe in what we read that first day because there's going to be much more to discover later on. So I like working at the table with writers for a long time before we get to that. But uh, at first, I uh, I just want to hear what the writers have made. You know, I just want to hear the play. I want the actors to hear the play. And I, and I'm, I always hope that I've cast it well enough so the text will be illuminated simply by the people who are in the room. But every process is every process is different. You know, I was reflecting on this the other day. Because uh, I was reading a bunch of stars, and we were going after a bunch of stars in for Venus and for CSC. And then suddenly Nina Ariana walked in the room, and I just said, we have to hire her. We have to hire her. That's it. She is this part. We will find nobody better. And because we were at CSC and not Broadway, I could say, we don't, we're, this is, our, this is our, our woman. Same way with... Uh, with Carmen Cusack, you know, because we were going to New York stage and film to see what it was like, I could hire someone who was unknown at the time. Anyway, when you have someone that well cast, what they bring is they, they demand that the play get better by their very presence. Mm-hmm. They set such a high bar that you're eager to rewrite, that you're eager to fix, change, and you're informed by what they're bringing into the room. But what I was thinking about the other day is I don't know how I would rehearse Venus and Fur in the current political, sexual, scandal climate. I mean, how do you say, you know, today we're going to 
practice slapping, <laughs> you know. And although I don't think Venus and Fur is about S&M, I think it's about power and where the power rests. I, I was thinking, because when we rehearsed that play, it, it, it became it's sort of inevitable what it is in hindsight. But we didn't know what we had. I thought we'd have people just walking out of the room. And we rehearsed in a room the size of the room in the play. There were no assistants. Nobody was hanging around. It was me and David Ives and the stage manager. We didn't let, we create a very private, safe space to explore not just the physical dynamics of the play, but the psychological uh, abuse, manipulation, so that it was a play about power, as sexual as it was. They didn't touch each other forever. And I talked to some people who were, as they say, in the life to make sure that I was not betraying that because I had no interest in making a judgment about it. But I think, gee, how would we rehearse today uh, tying up? You know, uh, it's, it's a tricky political climate we're in now. And I just think of uh, some things I've done in recent years, including a play called Submission, which I did at MCC with Jonathan Gross, Virginia Wesley, and Eddie K. Thomas, and uh, Rogers. And it dealt with real issues of sexuality, race, because Jonathan was pretend got a black woman to pretend she had written his play so that he had a better chance of being accepted at an arts fest. And just mayhem ensued, and much more than that. And by the end, you know, it was brutal. There was physical violence. And and Jonathan and Rutina especially, they would forgive each other for rehearsal. And I'm, I'm reminded of all that stuff now because of the political climate we're in and how sensitized people are. But I, I just remember that we would get together at the end of the rehearsal and forgive each other for rehearsing. I don't know why that came up, but I mean, it's just, it's been on my mind so much lately, these, these two plays in particular. And uh, and the climate that we're in right now, and how do how do we manage it? Because I I think I create a very safe rehearsal space. I think I'm very I think I have I ha- here's the thing I have a plan. I have my own little triptych, and here's how we're going to get there. But if somebody comes up to me and says, "Can we go down that road and stop in there?" I say, "Sure, let's go see." And if there's information down there, we take it back. I have a very uh, I have a plan, but I'm open to a new idea that comes into the room. But the difference between rehearsing a revival and planning for that, and the difference of rehearsing a new musical and the difference in rehearsing a play, process is very different, but it starts, for me, with the story. What's the story? What's the story? What's the story? And how do we get everybody to do their part in telling the story? And when you you do that in a musical, the responsibility of the choreographer, the vocal arranger, the set designer, all have an incredible hand in exploiting the narrative in a way that when you have two people sitting in their jeans across the table having a conversation, there's a different atmosphere you create, there's a different way you prepare for that. You could only direct plays or musicals for the rest of your career, which one would it be? Oh, that's very hard. I mean, I think that most, even these days, I really want to direct plays because I care about stories. And the kinds of musicals that I'm attracted to uh, usually have some you know, Chicago is, has a has a real muscle to it, a real thematic muscle. I I like grown up musicals. I uh, a lot of what I see around, I want to be asked to do everything. But I'm not really the right guy for certain kinds of shows. I sat there, admired uh, what Tina Landau did in SpongeBob. It's an admirable evening of invention, wit, and then I thought, boy, am I the you know? Don't call me for that job because that's that's not mine. But I. 
So there's a lot of stuff out there that I admire, but I, I, I don't think that I have the, the gifts to handle. And even the shows, the musicals that I'm interested in, I'm drawn to things that have a very interesting narrative or some thematic muscle. I mean, even for me, you know, doing Bright Star was so... It was really about a different time, but a lot of really well-intentioned people behaving badly and having a great consequence on other people's lives. So that I was not... You know, the songs got changed. We kept worrying about the story. Steve was always figuring out how do we make his story or their story work. How do we, and the songs will come. And I was never worried about if it was going to be funny. I always just thought, what's the story? How do we tell this story? So we dealt with it more narratively and let the... Because when we started the New York Stage and Film, we did the workshop that's unrecognizable from what we finally presented. So I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to story. How long was that process from New York Stage and Film to where it ended up? At least four years later. We did New York Stage and Film. We did a reading, and then we did New York a cold reading. And then we did New York Stage and Film. Then we were off at the Old Globe, and I said, I can't go to the Old Globe unless we do a workshop, because how do, I don't know how to get, jump two different time periods and 40 locations and not have any scenery, because we can't go to all those places. We have to figure out a way to make the audience go there with us. And I started working with Eugene Lee, and we did a workshop. The show changed completely. Uh, characters fell away. Whole sections of the narrative disappeared. Then we did it out at the Old Globe. More of that happened. And then when we knew we were coming to the, the Kennedy Center and to Broadway, even more happened. We didn't even have our opening number till the day before we left for the Kennedy Center. We had openings, but they, we didn't have an opening number. And I remember one day saying to Edie, you see the opening curtain? You have to, you have to take the there. You have to. And she went home that night, and the next day she came back with, if you knew my story, we read it. And I said, we're doing it during the run-through today. Go up there with a piece of paper and do it. By that afternoon, we were staging, and we opened it with it in Washington. Many things. So we were always in development. I just did it in California, and I changed the end of the first act and the beginning of the second act. That's the great thing about theater. You That's can you, do you that. Can do, yeah, because it's a, it was a complicated story. It always was a complicated story, and, and thinning it out and refining it has been... We sort of threw a, a master class in development. Whether you like the show or not, what it started out as... And what everybody allowed and helped it become was an experience I will never forget. Well, you mentioned Chicago, so let's let's talk about that little, little show okay. of yours. How quickly in that process did you know that something very special was happening on that stage that would have a life even just beyond encores? Was it immediate when you were watching, going like, uh-oh, this, this is something bigger than we... Imagine. I don't think I thought of it that way. I was, you know, I was the artistic director over there. I had, once it gave me the job, I was going to direct the next show and I fired myself. I said, that's not it. You can't let this be a vanity house for you. So I, 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 and then by the time I got to that third season, I thought, I need to give myself a show. And I always loved the score. No, seriously. But at first I just, I was supposed to direct uh, Call Me Madam. And I said, this is the producer in me. I said, Walter, don't do this. Spend your time helping to find what this thing is. Your job is not to have a theater where you can direct all. And so I let myself be the artistic director. And I let my 
instinct and my taste in material drive my work. And so ultimately, when I chose Chicago rather selfishly, because that I wanted to do, I always loved that score. I thought it was remarkable. And I was I was making really no real money at Encores. It was a great job. And I was up in Camden, Massachusetts, shooting as an actor, shooting a terrible film, Stephen King's Thinner. And I had like 10 scripts with me because I would go down and I'd do my scenes at Thinner and then go back to my hotel and read scripts. And I'm reading Chicago, and I always love the music, and I'm watching the O.J. trial, and I went, this just feels like it was written today. It didn't feel like a revival. It felt like it had what was once uh, a satire had turned into a documentary with music. And I thought, I have to do this show, I have to do this show. And then John Lee and I started working on it very carefully because uh, back then every show didn't the orchestra wasn't the same way every time this band you know so we we started working we were talking about the process the other day and we were tr- we were trying to see how much we could get rid of so we went to we were looking for some metaphor and I said I want to take the band nobody knows this and nobody cares about this when they see the show and nobody should but I uh I said, I want, the, I want the band to be in a jury box. I said, trap, tra- everybody in this show is trapped. And I want the cast on stage. I want them trapped on stage. They can't get out of this event. And so John made a jury box, and John just kept manipulating and expanding it. And we looked, I remember this great painting by Hockney. This is great Hockney painting of all these characters in little boxes in a box. And it references a whole garth etching. I mean, so all the, you know, there was a lot of thought that went into doing nothing. And we worked for months kind of defining the metaphor of being able to do this and not dressing the cops as cops and not dressing the attorneys as attorneys, but to what Fosse loved were dancers for it to be a celebration of, I wanted to feel like Fosse had come back and redirected the show. I wanted it to be an homage to all the great things I had seen him do. And the first time seeing those ladders hit the night, how cool was that? Yeah. And so that it, I was not interested in reviving his production, but I was interested in illuminating what I think is an astonishing career, a great imagination, choreographically, thematically. And so we, we took it very seriously. And although it looks like there's nothing there, Every time we got rid of something, um, it illuminated the ideas of the show. And nobody had to change costume, and they could come down in their fishnets and be a reporter or a lawyer. You know, and uh, I said to William, I, belong. I want this show done in Fosse's favorite colors, black and flesh. <laughs> and so, anyway, I've always been surrounded by a great creative team who who could, in subtle and remarkable ways, make what's up there seem inevitable and unnoticeable at the same time. And obviously it's had this sensational run of 20-plus years now. What do you think about it is the reason for its staying power that we can learn from as we look to do other revivals? We're, We're completely obsessed with celebrity and the power and the manipulation of celebrity. And... We we watch, and we're watching it more and more, we watch people get away with murder. And this one does it with toe-tapping and some of the most seductive, enticing, sinuous dance choreography, dance vocabulary around. It's Fosse's uh, vocabulary is singular. And before we started it, Anne and I went into a room with her students, 
And we did a workshop of three of the numbers. I said I wanted to look like Fosse, but I don't want I don't want Fosse's choreography. So I said I'd like, for example, cell block. I want six bedwood chairs, which are in every Fosse show, every including cabaret. And I just want to drop some lights above them and do it as an interrogation. Because originally they were in jail costumes. They had jail bars in front of them that lit up, but they walked around, all that stuff. And I just said, I want it to look like Fossey's number, but I don't want any of that stuff. And we did that with three numbers. And I realized that Annie was able to crack and exploit his great vocabulary without remounting the numbers that were in the original Chicago. A young director comes to you today and, and wants to be the next Walter Bobby. Would you give them the same advice that you took, frankly, for yourself in building your own career, or would you advise something different to them? Well, I, you know, if you really, if you, if you have the opportunity of great working with uh, a great director, do it. Or being in a, you know, I was an actor, so I was in the room of great directors. But I'd say go make it, make it, make a job for yourself. No one's gonna, no one is going to hire you. And every time you see the new directors emerge, careers, it's always with their friends. And the people are, you know, my college roommate. I mean, look at Tommy Kale and, and, uh, and Lynn. You know, these people who hung out together, they were of the same mind, and they made things together. And then somebody noticed. But if you're new, no one is going to hire you. You have to do something that allows them to be noticed. At least actors can go and audition, but you can't do that. It was the same thing for me. I was trying to get the rights to everything when I started producing. No one would give me the rights to anything. Books that, that sold four copies, I couldn't get the rights to. I had to do something on my own. Okay, my last question, my genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and wants to thank you for your contributions to the theater uh, and, frankly, for that great advice to any you know, emerging directors out there. By granting you one wish... What's the one thing that drives you crazy about Broadway? You said something earlier about how you've been blessed, you just love what you do, it's been a great journey, but what's the one thing that makes you mad, angry, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? I am afraid of how expensive Broadway's becoming. And although I think we're going through a great renewal of artistry, I'm really frightened of it turning into the opera where it's unaffordable for regular people. We are now, and I've said it for a long time, we, we, we now walk around Broadway where we see a bunch of installations. Every producer wants a show that's going to park for 20 years. So there are fewer and fewer opportunities. And, and I don't think it should cost a thousand dollars to see a show because that way you don't develop theater goers. You develop people who go to Disneyland. Disneyland, it's a one-off. It's something, it's a life experience rather than a cultural evolution. So, that bothers me, but I, there's no stopping it. But we we work in Vegas right now. If 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 Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller were alive today, they would not be working on Broadway, or they would be in a limited run with 16 weeks with a movie star. Otherwise, they would be hopefully at uh, the Atlantic Theater Company or you know Playwrights Horizons. But the great masters of the of the previous generations would not be Broadway playwrights. Plays do not happen on Broadway. Fancy revivals happen on Broadway. And so I, there's nothing to do about it, but I'm very aware of the changing economics. I'm very aware that when we did Bright Star, it cost us $500,000 a week to run. And we made $500,000 a week. The fact that you can't run when you're making half a million dollars a week is a painful economic model. So is there something, I, I don't know, that I would wish? I would wish that people, I mean, there's, 
wonderful creative work going on, but, but we really are in a time where it's hard to be adventurous on Broadway. It has to be have great wide appeal for it to get there. And if you want to do, I mean, we d- I did a show that didn't work at all called High Fidelity with great people. I mean, Jeffrey Seller was one of our producers, Robin Goodman, uh, Kevin McCollum. We had David Lindsay Bear, Tom Kitt. I mean, it was a great, great team. And the show didn't work for, in hindsight, for many reasons, which I recognize. Not that we did it badly, but I think the story doesn't work. We don't like anti-heroes in the theater, you know. They just... And then after that, I just, I went through a period where I, I just went downtown and I was at MCC and CSC and EST and everything that had an alphabetical name. And I just did one new play after another. And I was so happy to be back in the sandbox and not be afraid to do a play about Spinoza, do a play, a verse version of, uh, you know, Tartuffe. And I mean, you know, I just went back into the sandbox and I had the best time. I made no money and had the good fortune of having Chicago so I could afford to go and go back to class, a class that I made for myself with the cooperation of some fantastic producers, producing companies in New York City. And I think you have to do that. And you see all the wonderful, you know, you that's what happens. Joe Mantella and is as likely to be on Broadway as he is to be somewhere downtown. And, you know, Sam Gold is as likely to be on Broadway as he is to be in somebody's kitchen downtown figuring something out with Shakespeare, you know, or whatever. No, but don't you admire those artists? Yeah, Joe actually said the same thing that you did after a show of his didn't work on Broadway. He went downtown, and it's not, he said it's where he not only found solace, but actually refound inspiration and art and was able to come back up north. You can come back up north and do things that you learned downtown that you could not have learned when the 15 or $18 million was on your back. Well, thank you for that answer. Thank you for doing this. And I actually owe you two thank yous because of you. I had two company manager gigs. I company managed Chicago and Las Vegas. Oh! And I was the, my first company manager job was as the company manager of the non-union bus and truck of a grand night for Oh my God! <laughs> so thank you for kicking off my management career and for doing this was, podcast. Were you in Vegas when I was there? No, I took over from my company yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Just at the very end. But thanks for that. Thanks all of you for listening, and we will see you next time. Don't forget to check out BeABroadwayStar.com, the only Broadway board game out there, the perfect gift for your theater-loving friends. BeABroadwayStar.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E 
lucky.org because only together we rise. It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to luckylandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today. At LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.